Hello and welcome to Gamification Unlocked, a show about real games and how we can use their techniques for learning and change. I'm Brandon Carper, a training designer. And I'm Chad Hafley. I do user experience work in libraries. And uh, today we are talking about a game about menial jobs. Repetitive, boring tasks. Chad, what is the most repetitive, boring, menial job <laughs> that you have had? Oh, so I have, believe it or not, never worked a job that is not in a library. Uh, <laughs> really? But there is nothing nothing boring or repetitive in a library at all, whatsoever, <laughs> ever. Um, but no, my first job in a library was shelving books in high school, which is probably the very definition of repetitive. Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. Uh, but at least there's some satisfaction to that. The book is unshelved and then it's shelved, right? Yeah, until someone moves it. And then, That's true. And then all your work is for nothing. Entropy visits us all, even if we're librarians. Yep. How about you? What's the most most menial on your list? Well, I've had a few. I think the worst one that comes to mind was when a, a large department store hired me to work their Christmas department in October. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that job was basically standing still in front of a register and waiting for four hours i think my all-time high uh customer count was about three or four and it got that's yeah that's menial yes yeah well it got so bad that uh i eventually snuck in a pocket copy of hamlet and began memorizing <laughs> just how, how far did you get how much of hamlet did you memorize <laughs> um i think i uh a good four or five pages i think <laughs> that's that yeah. that is something yeah but you know today as christmas continues to expand you would probably be much busier in that position this is true that's one benefit i guess of christmas creep you you were you were a trailblazer in the october <laughs> christmas frontier you know i didn't think of myself like that mm -hmm. uh, put that on your resume yeah and then and then later in my career i had a job where the company I worked for would import content from a text file or a Word document into their own proprietary software, and they were worried that the software wouldn't do it accurately. So my entire job for days on end, once these files came in, would be to have two dual monitors, and I would make sure that the text in our software matched the text in the Word document. And... Wow, you! I'm I'm at the risk of jumping ahead. You may be the most perfectly suited person to talk about the game we're going to talk about today in the history of ever. Yeah, yeah. So you know, we're talking fifty or sixty pages, just making sure every period and comma and capitalization was was still there. At some point, isn't it better to just have you do the job in the first place? Uh, one would think so, but. I was not in a position to make those type of process improvement suggestions. <laughs> <laughs> you are a machine in flesh. <laughs> uh, thank you. So that brings us to the game we're discussing today, which is Papers, Please. The winner of the best game of 2013 from to apparently every magazine on the planet to look at. <laughs> Games yeah, everyone kind of converged on it at the same time, and I don't think it was like a foregone conclusion it was going to win this stuff. It just kind of one of those black swan events that pops up all over. 
Yeah, yeah, it got the Best Game Award from Wired and PC World, uh, which are well-known magazines, Destructoid, which is a lesser-known game review magazine, even the the New Yorker, which I had no idea <laughs> reviewed video games. Gave yeah, let alone one. give a Game of the Year award, but now now I'm going to check this year and see <laughs> if they've continued this at least three-year-long tradition. Right, and Chad, you actually researched a little bit of the history of the game developer <laughs> I saw. Yeah, so to give you an idea of the level of tedium and where he comes from, his previous game, which I will say I have, have not played except for about two minutes in the researching of, of this episode, but his previous game before Papers, Please, guy's name is Lucas Pope, was called Unsolicited, and the tagline that he himself put on his game. So this is the best possible thing he could come up with to promote his game and make it attractive to play. Make the Acme form letter company stand out as the premier form letter mailing service on Earth. And it's a flash game. You can play it in your browser and you essentially fill in the blanks in a form letter. And if like you have to get the right name and the right phone number and if you get it wrong, you lose points. That sounds like the mission statement, like the, the legit mission statement of some company. <laughs> somewhere. Yeah, somewhere that's that's hooked into like an actual office and you are actually mailing actual form letters. Uh, the most mundane Ender's game ever. <laughs> <laughs> but that's that's the level that, that this guy's brain works at. That's what he excels at, his specialty, you might say. I guess so. I didn't know he had a, a, a history with paperwork simulators. There was uh, a, another game, which I'm going to forget the name of now, that he did, which involves writing propaganda in a newspaper. Really? Which is at least a little bit more of a game, but... Um... Yeah, so he, he's got a lot to do with paperwork in general. And in Papers, Please, uh, you work as a border control officer for an imaginary Eastern European country. Would you say that's fair? Yes, and now we get to debate how to pronounce it. <laughs> you go first. <laughs> is it, oh, I don't even have the spelling from. Is it Arstotska? Uh, that sounds good to me. Uh, we'll, we'll go with go that. With, we'll go with that. Um and you check people's passports and paperwork, and you either admit them into Glorious Artsutska, or you deny them and send them back to whatever country is on the other side of the border. I don't know if that's made clear, although I guess you can deduce oh, it from, from the map. <laughs> yeah, it has to be one of a couple of options anyway. So the game plays out. Basically, someone walks into your booth, and you can kind of see a low-res version of a person. They give you their documents, you have to ensure everything's there, that the names and birth dates match up, that the seals on the documents aren't forgeries, and that the physical descriptions match the actual person. If everything matches, you give them a big green stamp, and they go on. If not, you give them a big red stamp, and they go back. And if you make the wrong choice, you immediately get a citation from your boss, which begs the question why your boss just doesn't use this magical system in the first place. <laughs> I did wonder that as I played, yes. <laughs> Much uh, in the way of your paperwork cross-referencing job, yeah. Right. And then at the end of each day, which takes about five to ten minutes, I, I started timing the days, and I think they get longer as the game goes on. I wondered on. if they were consistent or not, yeah. Because you get more and more rules, I think they get a bit longer to allow you to do more and more things. Is that a simulation of the more bored you get, the longer the day seems to take? Ah, uh, maybe. Good point. So you you then get paid based on the number of people that you process correctly each day. Uh, if you make more than two mistakes, your wages start to get docked. And then, Chad, what what do you get to spend your glorious winnings on at the end of the day? 
not dying. <laughs> if you're lucky, you get, uh, you know, all the basic staples of a uh, economically probably depressed fake Eastern European country. Your rent, your food, the heat to heat your um, crappy apartment, which you can eventually try and upgrade to a slightly less crappy apartment if you get some money. Uh, your family members get sick as the game progresses. Spoilers, sorry. And you have to maybe buy the medicine. Anyway, things pop up like real life and uh, there is rarely enough money to go around. Yeah, exactly. And at the end of the day, you basically get a couple radio buttons. The one for rent is always filled in. And then you get to choose, do you feed your family and do you heat your family? <laughs> and then you go on to what the did, next what did you prior? What did you prioritize if you had to choose between food and heat? Well, here, here's here's a life hack for you, Chad. So. Oh, oh, good. Okay. <laughs> Next time I'm stuck in a fake Eastern European country. Your life hack is that you feed and heat your family on alternate weeks. <laughs> that is a very similar strategy to what I ended up with. And your son will always get sick from, I think, lack of food, but you just buy him medicine, which is much cheaper than feeding your whole family. <laughs> <laughs> this is, oh man, I did my grocery shopping all wrong this week. Yeah, yeah, well, I'm sorry. You get to try again next week. But <laughs> this is how you amass your fortune in glorious Artsotska and upgrade your class 8 apartment to a class 7 apartment. I think I got up to a class 6 or whatever the next one was once. Oh, really? Uh, and I, I think the only benefit is that the rent is higher. I don't know that you even get a, a representation of <laughs> your nice new apartment. Yeah, that's, there's not even a little pixelated floor plan or anything, no. <laughs> the number literally just increments, or decrements by mm -hmm. one. Yep. So, any other comments on the basic interface or flow of the game, Chet? Um, no, there's some weird things that pop up from time to time, Um you might have terrorist attacks that you have to fend off later in the game. There's there's this a plot running through it. It's it's not just the mechanics, although the mechanics are what you get focused on. Um, there's you know a sinister or not sinister, depending on how you choose to view them. View of freedom fighters trying to free the country, and they might ask you to do tasks and let certain people through or not. So there is a little bit of intrigue to it. Right, right, and there will be more spoilers as this episode goes on. Yeah. Oops. Oops. No, that's okay. I it, think it's it, safe to assume that they're going to be terrorists at a border control crossing. It's also a three-year-old game, so come on. That's true. That's true. So the game begs the question of how does it make paperwork fun? I have to admit, when I first heard about this game, I said, <laughs> what? Like, is this an art project? I don't, I don't understand, because it is literally just checking papers. Yes, you can only play it at the Andy Warhol Museum. <laughs> <laughs> the line goes around the block <laughs> so when i was learning to be a teacher i was told one of the most basic ways of making a thing a game is to just give it a time limit that's fascinating kind of reductive game design that kind of works i think right so i think that's pretty much the simplest thing this game does that you can emulate if you have a classroom is just put a time limit on it and force people to do things more quickly than they might have to normally. You too can be a pretend Eastern European dictator in your classroom. <laughs> I think there's also a lot to be said for the, the sensory appeal of the, the user interface. Yes. So the the stamps are these huge green and, and red things and they, they have weight and they make a nice stamping sound and they leave this, you know, huge green or red mark. 
And then because you're trying to process people as fast as possible, you usually stamp the thing on their passport and just kind of click and drag and throw it at the person <laughs> to get them out of your I booth. found myself kind of found myself wishing at some points that they would sell like a USB stamp peripheral (laughs) like use that because it is it's satisfying even just clicking the mouse it is satisfying i only imagine have to assume that it would be that much more satisfying if i had an actual stamp that's amazing i never i i hadn't thought of that you should uh propose that to uh our good friend i am the king of monetizing three-year-old games (laughs) well we all have our niches chad yep yep and then there's also the there's a loudspeaker that you, you click on to admit people into your, your little booth of examination. Makes a, a nice, uh, I guess I guess if you've ever played The Sims, everyone talks in this thing that sounds like a language, but it actually isn't, and that's all of the, mm-hmm. the language in this game. But, it's yeah, very guttural sounding. Yeah, very, very somehow somehow just dystopian <laughs> sounding. <laughs> Dystopianese. Dystopian, dystop, dystopianese. So, yeah, so you progress through the game, you get to wield this huge stamp and uh, control people's destinies, and you get to make these loud noises to bring people in, and I I think the fact that you are controlling people's imaginary destinies also kind of makes it fun, right? Yeah, and there's also some interesting limits they put on the interface, and I'll include a screenshot of this on the blog post for the episode but you have very limited real estate to work with. Mm-hmm. You know, most a lot of games you get and, you know, bigger monitor gives you more space to do stuff. But I think that's very on purpose not the case in this game. You're you're cross-referencing what four or five documents sometimes <laughs> and you, you don't have space to look at more than maybe two of them at once. Yeah, and I think there is one point in the game where you get this huge soccer banner from <laughs> yes, from a star soccer player and you can hang it on your wall, but if it's hanging on your wall on the wrong day, then your supervisor comes in and docks you a huge amount of pay. So you you have it on your desk, and yeah, and then you have the guide to the rules on your desk, and then you have to put the passport and the other thing on your desk. You get a key for a gun later. <laughs> you put on your desk yeah. which is very awkward when you lose the key to your gun and you need it when someone <laughs> shuffle the papers shuffle the papers <laughs> just hold on one second <laughs> border crossing wait in line criminal. patiently please yeah i gotta unlock my gun um yeah, yeah I, I think it, i think that the limitations of the ui are, are very yeah intentional it'll be a totally different game which i'm sure we'll talk about more later if you could neatly lay out everything in front of you sure and then the game also has another staple of, of good games or just fun work in particular, which has a lot of names throughout the ages. Uh, I think the the in vogue one right now is Flow, where mm-hmm. things aren't too hard, they're not too easy, they're just at that Goldilocks level of increasing difficulty. The game teaches you new things and gives you just enough time to master them before throwing a wrench in the works. If you're were yes. if you're an education uh, major, you might hear the phrase "zone of proximal development." That sounds like a game title, actually. Yeah. <laughs> or yeah, possibly some spell you learn in Final Fantasy at the end of the game. <laughs> it's got to be in there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which is just a fancy way of saying you you give people tasks at the edge of their ability to keep them interested and keep them progressing. 
I th- one I, of those big words. Yeah, uh, yeah, several, several big words. I think the other thing the game does is that, like you were alluding to, chat, unexpected things happen throughout the game. Mm-hmm. Do you want to touch on a, a few yeah. of those? So a couple of days, like you said, most days take five to ten minutes to go through. But there's a couple of days that are actually very, very short. You might process one or two people, and then all of a sudden there's a terrorist attack, which kind of advances the story and you know provides justification for uh, enhanced scrutiny at the border. Um, trying to think what some of the other unexpected things are. A lot of different terrorist attacks. You know, your supervisor showing up to check on your soccer poster and make sure you have... Um, the certificate he gives you the certificate of sufficiency <laughs> yes I... I think which if you get the certificate of sufficiency and don't display it on your wall you are penalized <laughs> yes for not being sufficiently sufficient i guess um other guards might come and offer you bribes because uh, it turns out this other guard makes money for processing detained people so you are presented with an opportunity that if you detain more people he'll share some of the cut with you uh, there's some moral decisions that pop up. And what are some of the surprise events I'm forgetting? Yeah, that was the biggest one for me is when the people going through the checkpoint have these real lives that you suddenly feel obligated to to help out or bad yeah. about yourself if you don't. You know, the, the game starts off and, oh, it's just a job and I, I have to feed my family and, and keep the apartment warm. But then you have someone come in and say, hey, my wife's right next right after me in line. Can you, you know, please make sure she gets through? The guy goes through, then the woman comes in and and she doesn't have the right paperwork. So do you deny her like a good border control agent or do you allow her to go on like a good human being? Or is she lying to you and about to blow up the border? You don't know. And that's pretty early in the game. That's on like day two or three, I think. Right, right. Yeah, the game. What did you do, by the way? Did you let her in? Yeah, I think... I think I let her in, although I, th- it, I I first played the game a couple years ago, so I'm trying to remember what I did at first. I think it took a little while for the game to kind of shake me out of my, you know, get the most points mentality, you know? Mm-hmm. But after it, it did, I started making more moral decisions, I think. Moral meaning? Like evaluating people's requests on... Would I be a good person if I let them in versus just would I get five more bucks at the end of the day? Oh, okay. You know? Yeah. I I also played it for the first time a few years ago, though not very much. And I think I probably let her through the first time. Um, but this time when I played, I did not. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I decided I was going to be a hard ass about that one. And how did you feel about yourself, Chad? Well, <laughs> I felt like I could give my son medicine. <laughs> so that that felt good i suppose i did realize this time through so at, at one point in the game you have to start checking people's weight before they can go through and that was if, the one that always got me yeah and then if the weight doesn't match you're supposed to do a, a full body photograph and then check to make sure they don't have any bombs strapped to their body parts well I didn't have this problem the first time around, but this time around I forgot that you're supposed to rotate the photograph to see what they look like from behind. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so so I kept letting these people in, and they would just explode <laughs> as soon as they got out. <laughs> and when you, let a, when you let a terrorist through, it turns out they will just explode and, and end your day, and then you don't get a chance to make any more money, which is very inconvenient. Although there were times where I would have welcomed the opportunity to not make any more mistakes either. 
Yeah, that's a <laughs> really, you just got to a certain point in the day when you just wanted to <laughs> stop all you were ahead. <laughs> my first couple of playthroughs in the la- about a week ago, they were just not good. I was not doing well. <laughs> I was not a very good Border Patrol agent. Uh, so at some point it would have been better for a terrorist to end my day. For for my finances, anyway. <laughs> well, you, you always have the choice of just, like, sitting back and letting the clock run out, you know? Yeah, I suppose that's true. I didn't um, think of that. Yeah. So, I think if you're a classroom teacher or anybody, you know, managing a group of people, and you want some <laughs> quick tips to enhance the fun of whatever your students are doing... The mandated like it, fun. Yeah, the... <laughs> The government-mandated fun. I feel like I'm a BuzzFeed article title. <laughs> uh, yeah, give give things a time limit. I mean, it, it can be, you know, kind of a crude, simple thing to do, but it's astonishingly effective. Um, make sure that, you know, to signify that someone is done with a task or some portion of a task, you give them something, you know, flashy or, or fun that appeals to their senses to do. Um you know, we all got stickers in elementary school at some point. Oh, now I'll feel bad because there's probably at least one person out there who <laughs> never got a sticker. I never uh, filled up that chart. Never filled up that chart. But one thing that my secondary ed teachers always told me was that people never get tired of getting stickers. And I found out as a high school teacher <laughs> that <laughs> that is true. <laughs> well, as the parent of a three and a half year old, I'm glad to hear that that trend will continue. I can get some more mileage out of that one. <laughs> yeah, very, uh, very low cost investment in motivation, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and keep uh, keep your students or learners on their toes. You know, give them a task to to do, but then introduce maybe a complication a little bit of a ways into the activity or the game. But you know, make sure it's still related to the the lesson, of course. Don't just run around screaming random things. Don't just for, blow for up a balloon and pop it. Out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, very good. So I think, you know, I think, Chad, if I were to be teaching bright, young, hopeful, young Mr. Holland Sopus people <laughs> in an education <laughs> program, <laughs> uh, I would probably make them play this game uh, because I think that it, in a very fun, succinct, effective way, teaches some things that are absolutely essential to to master as you're designing lessons. Do you feel like the game does that good a job of of bringing people in? Oh, I think yeah, a hundred a hundred percent. This game is uh mm-hmm. is, is amazing from from that perspective. In in education, there's a a fancy term, not as fancy as zone of proximal development, but oh man, uh, it's called scaffolding. So it brings to mind, you know, a picture of a building with a bunch of stuff on the outside to allow people to stand on it and keep the building up while they're building it. And this is basically the principle that you don't throw learners at a full task right away. You know, you don't put a car, put someone in a car for the first time and tell them to parallel park as their, <laughs> their yeah, first thing not to do. End well. Yeah, you start them off with a, a limited version of the task and you, you slowly work up to the, the complete version. Or you provide coaching or, you know, some other support and you slowly take that away until your students are flying on their own. 
Yeah, and the sheer number of things that you end up doing at any one time in the later days of this game is amazing. And if you had told me at the beginning of the game that I would be comparing these things when I was like struggling to check someone's height against their passport at the beginning, I would never have believed you. But by the end, I, I got pretty good at it. Yeah, exactly. That that ramp up of difficulty is just so gradual and well done. So yeah, like, like you said, it starts out, You're I think you're literally just stamping approval on passports from your home country of Artsotska and mm-hmm. denials on passports from other countries. So you're, you're literally, literally just learning how the stamp works. <laughs> <laughs> Day one, stamp things. Day one, uh, yeah, stamp it if it says your country's name on it. Next, you have to check for discrepancies and expiration dates. So if a, you know, a passport is expired, you got to deny that, make sure the photos match the person. Uh, then you have this this reference book with all of the possible cities that a passport could have been issued in based on the country. So then you have to check the issued city of the the passport against the actual possible list of cities, and sometimes it's off by a letter. (laughs) Yep. And that can be a reason for denial. After that, foreigners need to have entry tickets. And like you said, eventually you get to the point where someone is arriving on a work visa, so you have to check their work permit against their passport against their entry permit, which is a third document. Then you got to compare their height and weight to their identity supplement. Then you got to make sure that everything has the correct seals, that everything's a circle and not a square or filled in or has the initials on it. Then you have to interrogate them over any discrepancies, take security photos if they can't explain a change in their weight, fingerprint them if they have different names, and also you have a tranquilizer gun that you have to be ready to shoot someone with (laughs) if they jump the wall. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and and that is one person in line yes that yeah that's just one person and you're i don't know how many people did you typically process in a, a day Chad? Oh, that's a good question <laughs> on a good day <clears throat> excuse me on a good day i would get through maybe a dozen i think but that would be like peak efficiency oh yeah i think a dozen was the uh the most i ever i ever got through yeah I, i'd be but, quite happy with uh with a dozen yeah other days I might get through two or three and just just call it a thing. Oh, two or three. That's that's rough. That's that's barely enough to buy medicine for junior. Yeah, junior Archstoken was he had a rough night. <laughs> and then he asks you to buy a $20 crayon set. <laughs> yeah, really. I mean, I know there's government, you know, state-run economics at work, but that seemed particularly ridiculous to me. But then he draws you a picture and if you hang it on your wall, you get penalized for it. The moral of the story is <laughs> Don't buy everything crayons. stinks. <laughs> or everything <Yeah>. stinks. <laughs> so a lot of vid- a lot of good video games use an effective scaffolding process, and in my opinion, it's one of the most important things that the training field can learn from video games is how to teach someone so effortlessly and get them doing such a complicated series of interlocking tasks without them realizing it. I think that is probably the one of the single most important things that trainers can can learn from video games. And every game really has to do that well, from, you know, your basic point-and-click mobile game all to more complicated ones like this and to massively multiplayer games, etc. Everything's got to use scaffolding in some way to teach you how things work. Right, exactly. I mean, Chad, when you and I, back in the Dark Ages, first played mm-hmm. games, we had to read manuals to figure out. And, and they were uphill in the snow. Yeah, we, <laughs> the, man, the manuals were always uphill. Yeah. Um, 
And and sometimes you'll play a game today. You know, there I can't remember. I think we talked about manuals. I can't remember the last time I actually read a manual for actual instructional content. But you might start playing a game, and it might just you know give you a screenshot of everything that your mouse buttons or your your controller buttons do. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of trying to follow the old uh, instruction manual model, only in a different format. But the the really good games like Papers Please just build it into the game. Yeah, you don't even realize it's happening. Yeah, and Papers, Please puts all this in the context of a workplace environment, so I think that makes it a, a really good way to to teach new instructional designers. Yeah, that's what was particularly fascinating to me, I think, was just to let them shortcut and go straight to it. Like, they didn't have to justify why you're being given a reference book. It's because it's part of the story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So then I think another thing this game can teach educators, especially instructional designers who have to design the training, is how to do a good uh, task analysis. I don't know if this phrase has any meaning outside of my own field. Have you heard the phrase task analysis um, before? Well, I mean, I kind of understand it at a basic level. I'm assuming you're analyzing a task, uh, but, but no, not beyond that. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it basically means you write out all the steps in a process um, to a painful level of, of detail so that you can use it as a training outline later, you know? So mm-hmm. if you were to do a task analysis of of making a pizza, I think that's a typical uh, trainer wheel task analysis they give you. Making a pizza or making a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, you know, do you, where, where, where do you start? Um, do you assume that they're buying a pre-made pizza? Do you assume that they're making the pizza on their own? If they're making the pizza on their own, do you tell them, you know, what tomato sauce to buy and so on? And you have to make sure, like, you list the temperature of the oven and how large the pizza should be and all these really small things that an expert pizza maker might take for granted. But a novice pizza maker like myself would have no clue about. Mm -hmm. So... A lot of people wonder what the purpose of training is sometimes if you can just, <laughs> a lot of people think, well, just, just give someone a policy manual and give someone a guy who, or a guy or a girl who's been working here for a while. And then that expert can just walk them through the policy manual or the procedure and that's it. Brush your hands, move on with our lives. But beyond needing to structure training in a certain way, like through the scaffolding we saw earlier, the reason experts are experts is that they can do complicated things without thinking they don't have to devote brain cycles to all of the complicated steps that they've already memorized. And that's just accumulated through time and practice. Yeah, through through training and time and, and practice, mm-hmm. they've slowly made that all automatic. Like, walking is a very, very complicated task, especially if you've ever seen videos of people trying to teach robots <laughs> how to work, how to walk. We should do a whole episode about Quop someday. If you Quop! <laughs> Which is a game where it makes walking needlessly complicated. Yeah, so what do you have? You've, does it stand for the, the letters on the keyboard? Yeah, yeah. And each one moves where, a different limb or something? Some, yeah, it's like each one moves like a knee versus an ankle, and it's nearly impossible to take even a couple steps forward, even with refined practice. And that's a really good, uh, that's a good analogy. I saw someone mm-hmm. cosplaying a co-op character. Oh my god. <laughs> what did they do? Just fall down a lot? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> low, low effort cosplay. Um, so in, in this game, for example, as you go through it, you'll probably develop some tricks of your own. 
So, for example, I would always try to check the, the height and the weight first, because for me, those were the easiest to tell if those were wrong. And if those were wrong, then I could, you know, immediately start investigating them, you know, get their fingerprints or security photos. And while they were doing the fingerprints or the photos, then I could be checking their, you know, their issuing city against the reference book or something. So you multitask a lot. Yeah, so I, I would do the things that would give me some built-in downtime and then do the, the time-consuming things kind of, you know, in the, the interim. Mm -hmm. And then, so also, you have the option pretty early on to interrogate people about their expired passports, but you really don't get an advantage from doing this. <laughs> and you Yeah, can just, that's a really good point. You can just process the line faster if as soon as you notice the expired passport, you just stamp decline, throw the passport back out of them, and go on to your, your next person. There are times when you interrogate someone and they might say, oh, here's the documentation I forgot or things like that. And I was mm. never clear on if I turned them away in the first place, would I be penalized even though they ultimately had the right documents? I don't know. I didn't experiment enough to really figure that out. Yeah, that's a good question. I think I think I figured it out by trial and error, but I forget what the answer was. Yeah. Um, did you have any particular tricks or, or things that you did to, to I make did, it go faster? I did err on the side of declining, I think. Okay. Um, mostly because... I know it just seemed like there was always some reason to decline, especially in, in the, the later phases of the game when you're comparing everything. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I, I definitely fell into a routine. I trying to remember what I would check first. I think I always ended up checking the... Um, well, it would depend a little bit on what I had done previously. So whatever page I had open in the reference manual from the previous person that came through, mm -hmm. I would take advantage of checking that first uh, mm -hmm. if it was relevant so I wouldn't have to go back and, and cross-reference that again. Um and yeah, and then I try to do the easy visual things, like do they match the picture, the height, weight, etc. Um, trying to eliminate the easy things before getting into the more picky, like does their last name spelled differently on their passport kind of things. Yeah, did, did you find yourself always putting things in kind of the, the same place on yes, your, your little definitely. desk? So I, I would always have the that day's wanted photos off to like kind of the right-hand side, and then I would always yep. drag the passport. Yeah, yeah. And a couple times I somehow ended up with things in different places and I like I didn't know how to play the game anymore. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh my god, I, I swapped their entry permit with their passport. Uh, yeah, everything is ruined. Um so you know, if if you want to teach your budding instructional designers how to really do a good task analysis, I would have them play this game and then separate in their minds the rules that the game presents versus the kind of the tips and the, the rules of thumb that they develop as they go along to make them really good at the task. And uh, those intangible unspoken things are what your instructional designers need to somehow pull out of experts as they're going into the corporate world, trying to figure out what, what makes these people really good. What are the, what are the things that save people time? What are the things that, you know, Im improve quality that might not immediately be be obvious to someone? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting about actually using the game as an instructional tool itself, not just taking lessons from it. Right, right. Uh, very meta, I think. Yeah, but that works. <laughs> we'll go with it. So, excuse me, just as an example, on a, a training project I worked on, I had to work with project groups without project management experience trying to work with clients. So 
they there there was a project manager on the project, but at some point these people had to work directly with the clients because it wasn't uh, practical for the project manager to manage every communication between this internal team and the client. And the manager of that department was struggling with getting these people to appear competent in front of the clients. The clients would often complain about they didn't feel like their issue was being handled appropriately. So, again, this this sounds like a perfect job for communications training man, right? Yes, yes. Let's, referring back to previous episode. Yeah. Right, let's send them... <laughs> we should make that a recurring character. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, that'll be our first fan art topic, I hope. Um, yes, please someone send that in. So, you know, that maybe the first knee-jerk reaction might be to send those people to a five-day communication training... But as I was talking with the people who were really good at their job and people whom the clients really liked, these people said, oh, I just make sure I send the clients just quick, regular emails, regardless of whether or not there's a problem. That way, you know, when there is a problem, people don't freak out. It's kind of a normal occurrence that they're hearing from me. And I've built up enough, you know, trust and confidence from my, Mm -hmm. you know, everything's going as planned emails that it's not a huge deal. So makes a lot of sense. Right. Once again, this, <laughs> I feel like a bad advertising headline, this this one cool trick that experienced <laughs> uh, project members knew, that I think went a long way into helping these people appear more competent. Um, so yeah, look for those kind of things whenever you're, you're designing training, or even if you're a new person on a job and you're trying to shadow someone and learn from them, pay attention to those things that aren't written down that they, they might do to make them really good at what they do. Yeah, the unwritten rules are key. All right, so that's going to do it for us. We've kind of covered the instructional design and educational aspects of Papers, Please. And on our next installment, we'll talk more about the user experience design that the game employs. There is so much to dig into. There's <laughs> so, so much. I did, I did not even realize myself. Uh, you've been listening to Gamification Unlocked. I'm Brandon Carper. I'm Chad Hayfley. Please rate us on iTunes or your podcast app of choice. You can find us on Twitter at Unlocking Games and on the web at unlockinggames.com. If you have a minute, feel free to send us a tweet or leave us a comment letting us know what you thought of the episode. And until next time, it's your move. <laughs>